I got a call uh, from one member of the DNC Rules Committee, and then I checked what this member of the DNC Rules Committee was telling me with another member. They're both in the Bernie wing uh, of the DNC Rules Committee. Multiple Bernie Sanders supporting members of the Democratic National Committee's Convention Rules Committee tell me that on conference call Wednesday, Sanders senior campaign advisor Jeff Weaver, who we know was Bernie's campaign manager in 2016, we know is Bernie's most loyal, beloved political aide. Uh, Most campaign workers did not love Jeff Weaver. Uh, Most Campaign workers felt that he has done a disservice to Bernie, but for whatever reason, Bernie loves him some Jeff Weaver and let's gives has always given Jeff Weaver an enormous amount of power and trust in Jeff Weaver. Well, apparently yesterday in a conference call, Jeff Weaver asked all of the committee members on the Rules Committee supporting Bernie to drop whatever proposals they planned on making or else they'd, quote, be going against the movement. This was said to me by one and then confirmed to me by another person on the Rules Committee. So, again, I spoke with members on the Rules Committee. Basically, the source I was speaking to, they ha- this source uh, was making proposals on superdelegates. There was uh, proposals that were going to be made on caucuses. There were proposals that were going to be ma- made just on extending the length of this meeting, because it was it's a two-hour meeting. They wanted to extend it to four hours. Uh, there were proposals for a lot of things. Basically, Weaver uh, in, was quoted to me, bullied them on the phone. We have made an agreement with Joe Biden's campaign. Uh, the agreement will get the superdelegates on the second ballot extended to 2024, meaning super, dele- super ballots, how they were – it didn't come into play this time – but how they were moved from the first ballot voting to the second ballot, that would be extended to 2024. So the committee members who had been proposing making them voting on the second, who wanted to propose making them uh, vote on the second ballot as permanent, not just extended to 2024, but making that a extended permanent uh, rule, were told by Jeff Weaver not to propose that. The members who were who wanted to propose doing away with superdelegates were told by Jeff Weaver not to propose this. Weaver said, quote, they made a deal with the Biden campaign and that they are asking all Bernie people on the committee to drop their proposals. Deals they deal they made was that superdelegates rule moving them to the second ballot would it be extended to the 2024 election. Quote, this is what Bernie wants, one source recounted Weaver saying on the call. Proposals Weaver asked members to drop, superdelegates on second ballot, making that a permanent thing, eliminating superdelegates altogether. He even told them to drop expanding mail-in ballots, longer voting hours, and expanding early vote, as well as a proposal to move more states from holding caucuses to primaries. I was told by one source they want a puppet meeting, sources tell me. At least the platform committee could make proposals. On the conference call was Weaver, Bernie, uh, a Bernie campaign lawyer, a few staffers, and Bernie supporting members of the rule committee. Weaver was leading the, quote, sort of bullying to convince everyone to drop their proposals, one source told me. 
So we could go a lot of different directions with this. Like I said, I don't really take a lot of stock in the Democratic National Convention platform, rules committee. I mean, just look at the people on that chair these committees. Barney Frank, former congressman, is the chairman of the rules committee. He's a swine. He works basically for Wall Street now. You also have Maria Cardona, who is literally a CNN contributor while being a lobbyist. So, I mean, these committees, both the platform committees as well as the rules committee, are not exactly made up of, you know, I don't want to sound like Trump. They're not bringing their best. (laughs) But this is not new, Bernie Sanders leaning on Jeff Weaver. And frankly, Jeff Weaver, uh, up. Let me read this short piece, short part from this piece. I just dropped it in there. For those who've worked with Bernie Sanders or covered him, a basic contradiction eventually presented itself. For a guy who talks a lot about revolution, he didn't like stepping outside of his comfort zone a whole lot. From 2015 through now, the most consistent political trait of Sanders was how small his inner circle he kept was, one chosen primarily due to loyalty rather than competence. Quote, When you have been on the outside for so long and you've seen lots of people in D.C. that don't share your values, for whatever reason, over time, what's rewarded is loyalty, not competence, a high-level staffer from Bernie's 2020 campaign told Status Coup. Quote, he has trusted Jeff for a very long time, even though Jeff has shown himself to not always be trustworthy, the same source told me. Bernie and Jane are not the best managers, to be honest. They don't want to get mired down in how you actually execute things and make them happen. They turn over and over again to Jeff to be the one who they put their trust in and sort everything out. Weaver's short-lived tenure with Our Revolution is important to understand when forwarding to the 2020 campaign. Knowing that he couldn't convince key 2016 staffers to come back with Weaver at the helm, Sanders hired the ACLU's Fez Shakir to run the campaign. Despite Shakir coming on to run the campaign, Weaver still had a front seat at the table for all major strategic decisions, according to a high-level staffer who spoke with Status Coup. Weaver's role was especially prominent in the early period of the campaign when Shakir, who had never run a political campaign before, deferred to Weaver for guidance on things he simply didn't know. This popped as a red flag to some high-level staffers on the 2020 campaign, considering Weaver was widely condemned by 2016 staffers for mismanagement and faulty strategy. Jeff's management style turned off many 2016 staffers, a top-down approach disinterested in hearing other staffers' views. Quote, Jeff's view was like, hey, we're running a military operation. I just made a call, and that's that, and we're going to go with it, one staffer told Status Coup. Strategically, many 2016 staffers argued with Weaver over his championing of a more traditional, heavy TV advertisement approach, over-investing more heavily in a robust paid organizing operation. With the concern over a 2016 redux, many returning staffers from the 2016 campaign were optimistic when Shakir was named campaign manager. Unfortunately for them, Sanders' loyalty to Weaver still loomed large. Quote, Jeff was a de facto facto second campaign manager, a high-level campaign staffer told Status Coup. Almost every major decision had to be made by both Jeff and Fez together, which did not make things function smoothly. So that's just a little bit of the piece uh, we reported a couple weeks ago. And why that's important, yes, obviously, Weaver, you know, trying to bully uh, Joe, uh, Bernie appointed and Bernie supporting 
members of the rules committee to not make proposals. I mean, obviously, Bernie is aware of this, so you can't just blame Weaver. But to me, Bernie, Bernie delegates an extraordinary amount of authority to Weaver because of misplaced trust that this guy knows what he's doing or misplaced trust that this guy's motives are pure. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I can't get in his head. But why, if you are the Bernie wing, why do you just surrender right away? You want to support Donald Trump if you're Bernie Sanders, Weaver, and the others? Okay. Bernie, you know, there's a lot of people criticizing him for even doing that. He said he was going to support the Democratic nominee. He says Trump is the most, uh, now, reprehensible um, threat to democracy ever? Okay. You're going to support Biden? Great. That's fine. But you're just going to, what, what does Bernie say? You don't start the negotiations offering half a loaf? You demand the full loaf and then negotiate? So why are you trying to bully the progressives on the committee not to propose any bold rules changes that could benefit progressives, particularly the next generation that might be running in 2024. The committee voted to table a resolution to change the DNC's charter to permanently bar corporate PAC donations to the DNC. Shocker. It's already a rule in effect this cycle and bar corporate lobbyists. The vote to table was 122 to 46 to table well i suppose tabling is better than voting no bernie appointee brent welder expressed alarm about tabling it since it saves the dnc the trouble of going on the record about it and likely shooting it down i am hearing that other progressive rules committee members are also not pleased so it's good to hear that at least some of the members told Jeff Weaver to go take a hike and did propose rules changes. So I'm going to play you a part of this, if you could take it, so you could just see what exactly, it, what exactly the Democratic Party is as a resistance to Donald Trump. Our platform says we are committed to doing everything we can to build a full employment economy where everyone has a job that pays enough to raise the family and live in dignity with a sense of purpose. However, you know, there, there's, a, there's a proposed law on this that has no co-sponsors. Why? Corporate interests do not want a federal job guarantee. It would drive up wages and reduce profits. Union rights are being trampled. I'm a, I'm a union side labor lawyer. And women earn less money at work than men doing the exact same job. Why? Because giant corporations lobby against the laws that we can and should pass to fix that. Our platform says Americans should be able to access public coverage through a public option. The Choice Act, a public option for health insurance, has been introduced in the House of Representatives. It has 20 co-sponsors. Medicare for All is co-sponsored by one-third of the Democrats in the Senate and about half the Democrats in the House. Our platform also says that Democrats have been fighting to secure universal health care for the American people for generations. We have not been able to win that fight because of private, for-profit health insurance companies who oppose a public option. 
Our platform says Democrats believe in climate change and that it poses or believe that climate change poses a real and urgent threat to our economy, our national security and our children's health and futures. And that Americans deserve the jobs and security that come from becoming the clean energy superpower of the 21st century. We are not even close to passing a Green New Deal. And why is that? Because corporations that make up the fossil fuel industry are willing to doom our children and grandchildren to a catastrophic future rather than see the possibility of their profits shrinking at all. We need to neutralize corporate influence, first within our party, that is preventing us from living up to our platform, our ideals, and being a true party of the people. The party of the people cannot put profits ahead of people and remain the party of the people. Thank you, Mr. Kriloff. I'm now going to call on Jerry Goldfeder for additional remarks. Schools, the parliamentary mm -hmm. procedure generally, until someone makes a successful motion to take it off the table uh, with the expiration of the committee, that wouldn't be possible. I mean, after the committee expires, if no one is moved to take it off the table successfully, then it dies with the committee. Gotcha. Wow, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Obviously, the campaign finance and campaign finance reform issues are extremely important. I've been privileged to be an election lawyer and a campaign finance lawyer for more years than I care to remember. And this is critical in terms of how we proceed as a party. And we're not shy as a party. We have a progressive platform and a presidential candidate who's committed to a broad and progressive agenda. And I should add, a candidate who doesn't accept contributions from corporate PACs. And over the coming months, if a contributor gives to our party, that contributor is signing on to our agenda, not influencing it. But this committee at this time is not the place to litigate these issues. Our mission is very clear. We need to have a successful convention, an inclusive nominating process moving forward, and most importantly, the election of Joe Biden. I move to table this resolution. There has been a motion to table this proposal. Is there a second? There is. A motion to table has been moved and seconded. We're gonna now move to a vote on the motion to table this proposal. I have a point of order or clarification here. Tabling until when? I'll respond under the rules of parliamentary procedure generally until someone makes a successful motion to take it off the table. Uh, with the expiration of the committee, that wouldn't be. Seen enough? I usually don't play clips that long, but I really, I, I, I really felt, you know, you needed to see the whole thing. So let's get something straight. Let's get something straight. I'm not even going to get into the disclaimers about Donald Trump. We all know Donald Trump is racist, dangerous, Islamophobic, sexist, probably raped many women, uh, laundered money from foreign countries, just a terrible person, largely responsible for the mass death count in the United Corporations of America. We, we know this. 
There is a deadly pandemic in America. Over 150,000 people have died. Frankly, that number is probably closer to 200,000. Now that we got out of the way, Trump, they voted down Medicare for all, not even, not even, not even uh, throwing the niceties, throwing the, you know, platitudes. Just no, no Medicare for all. You lost your job. Over 50 million people have filed unemployment claims. Sorry. We'll expand COBRA is the, is the brilliant plan from Queen Pelosi. Now, just putting or changing rules that the DNC could no longer take corporate PAC money. You have the same old bullshit from these rules committee members who often, these two white men who are talking, are often big donors that are on committees, real estate developers, think tank members, former or current lobbyists. I mean, the inmates are running the asylum, folks. The inmates are running the asylum. Do you see the smirk on these people's faces? Maria Cardona, who is host, hosting or moderating the committee, is literally a lobbyist. Jen, if you could find it, The Intercept has done great work on this sleazeball. Oh, she speaks Latino and goes on CNA, so she's great. These are the people. And again, I don't particularly care about the DNC convention. I don't care about the, the platform. It's meaningless. The Rules Committee, okay, I mean, if, if you move superdelegates to the second ballot, they'll probably, they're going to come up with a different way to screw you. But it just shows you these people with a straight face as they rig the economy, as they rig the political system, as they rig with bribery and a legalized auction. I'm not in love with uh, my old boss, Jenk, anymore, but he was right. We, are, we live under a legalized auction, legalized bribery. We live in the United Corporations of America. You have Brent Welder, uh, you know, ran in Kansas. Great progressive from the heartland, as they say. He's saying, we're supposed to be the party of the people here. Can we get rid of corporate PAC money? These two white guys, now's not the time. Now's not the time. They told us in 2004, now's not the time for this progressive purity. We need to get Bush out of the White House. Obama fed us a steady diet of progressive platitudes. We're going to heal the world, a post-partisan America. And then he allowed a Citigroup executive to literally hire his whole cabinet and pick his cabinet. We were told in 2016, now's not the time. Now's not the time for this. We have to stop this lunatic Trump for becoming president. 2018 midterms, we were told now's not the time to fool around with Medicare for all progressive policies. We got to retake the House on the road to defeating Donald Trump. 2020, now's not the time. Now's not the time for purity. And if that, if that wasn't sickening enough to you, Take a look at Barney Frank. 
arrogant, gross voter shaming. Trying to literally exploit the legacy of the newly passed away John Lewis, whose funeral was today, by basically voter shaming people who choose either not to vote or not to vote for Joe Biden. Barney Frank, who is the chairman of this so-called committee. Take a look at this. Those are the people choices that John Lewis asked America to make than any we've ever had, certainly since the Civil War. Beyond that, though, I do want to address another group that pays tribute to John Lewis, but does not apparently understand his message. Those are the people who think they're too pure to vote. Those are the people who say that they don't have a perfect candidate here. By the way, I, I understand how, what a good feeling it is to vote for a perfect candidate because once in my life, I got to vote for a perfect candidate. Uh, by the time I ran for re-election, I had a couple of issues with my record, but I, I voted for me anyway. Uh, and I think in this case, the differences are so enormous that we, we just cannot accept as in any way rational the argument that uh, uh, people can't vote in this election because uh, Joe Biden doesn't conform to everything they they care about. Wow. Wowzers. Well, first of all, um, I don't think anybody would argue John Lewis is a civil rights hero. Deserves all the praise in the world on the day of his funeral. But we, you know, we don't need to pretend he was wonderful till the end. As he got older, he became your typical Democrat. I'm not, I'm not shitting on him. But Barney Frank, who's as corrupt as they come, had some progressive, was a little bit more progressive when he was in Congress, but has fallen way, way out of that. To try and shame people and their purity and somehow say they're dishonoring John Lewis? Get the f*** out of here with that nonsense. People choosing not to vote or choosing not to vote for Joe Biden, it's not purity. It's not, you know, no, you know, this sushi place isn't good enough for me. It's... Purity, what Barney Franks calls purity, other people would call uh, living or dying. For, for most people, Medicare for All is not a purity test. It's can I live or will I die? Will my children be okay or will they die? For most people, banning corporate money, taking out money out of politics... It's not simply because we're just, you know, we're going we're gonna to kick and scream and take our ball and go home. It's because our conditions in life, our economic conditions, our social conditions, we are constantly on the brink of economic and social collapse. It's called survival. This is from the American Prospect, and it's truly great reporting. They've been doing some great work over there. Uh, Dave Dayen is great. 
I wish this came out earlier during the primary, during the primary, but whatever. Basically, they popped the lid that Cali- while Kamala Harris was Attorney General of California, she basically defied a Supreme Court ruling to decarcerate California jails. I mean, to me, Kamala Harris would be one of the one of the two things that Joe Biden could do to actually blow this thing. Senator Kamala Harris, a leading candidate to be Joe Biden's running mate, repeatedly and openly defied U.S. Supreme Court orders to reduce overcrowding in California prisons while serving as the state's attorney general, according to legal documents reviewed by the prospect. Working in tandem with Governor Jerry Brown, Harris and her legal team filed motions that were condemned by judges and legal experts as obstructionist, bad faith, and nonsensical at one point, even suggested that the Supreme Court lacked the jurisdiction to order a reduction in California's prison population. The intransigence of this legal work resulted in the presiding judges in the case giving serious consideration to holding the state of California in contempt of court. Observers worried that the behavior of Harris's office had undermined the very ability of federal judges to enforce their legal orders at the state level, pushing the federal court system to the brink of a constitutional crisis. This extreme resistance to a Supreme Court ruling was done to prevent the release of fewer than 5,000 nonviolent offenders, who multiple courts had cleared as presenting next to to no risk of recidivism or threat to public safety. Despite a straightforward directive from the Supreme Court to identify prisoners for release over a two-year period, upholding a 2009 ruling that mandated the same action over the same timeline, the state spent the majority of that period seesawing back and forth between dubious legal filings and flagrant disregard. By early 2013, it became clear that the state had no intention to comply, leading to a series of surprisingly combative exchanges. While Harris's ultimately unsuccessful presidential campaign saw questions raised about her criminalization of truancy and her tough-on-crime reputation during her time as San Francisco's district attorney, Her role in California's prison reduction case largely flew under the radar, though it was decried at the time. How did Harris's office turn to a simple court order to release low-risk prisoners to prevent cruel and unusual punishment into a constitutional fiasco? Federal courts seldom look to prisoner release. It's a remedy of last resort. But California was a unique case with its uniquely awful prison system. At its height, it was stuffed to some 200% of its design capacity. There were not enough beds or medical personnel, but an extreme excess of bodies. In one prison, 54 prisoners shared a single toilet. Preventable deaths due to substandard and overstretched medical care occurred every five to six days. Suicidal inmates were locked in telephone booth-sized cages for 24 hours at a time. For nearly two decades, Republican and Democratic administrations essentially ignored the problem despite constitutional protections for prisoners against cruel and unusual punishment enshrined in the Bill of Rights. Finally, in 2009, a federal court found that no other plausible solution existed for getting the state to conform to a constitutionally reasonable standard than a forced prisoner release. 
The state, under Harris, appealed the district court ruling, and on May 23, 2011, the Supreme Court found in Brown v. Plata that California's prison system was in violation of its prisoners' Eighth Amendment, Eighth Amendment rights. Despite its relatively conservative tilt, the court identified prisoners' release as the most effective method for ending the state's constitutional violation. The verdict split 5-4 with conservative Justice Anthony Kennedy joining the court's liberals. He said, uh, the, uh, including uh, his majority opinion, discussed an array of gruesome details from inside those prisons and condemning the state for facilitating, quote, needless suffering and death. At that point, Harris had been the state's attorney general for just over four months, but the Supreme Court ruling would have to be enacted on her, ref, on her watch. Every six months, the state would have to show it decreased its prison population in compliance with the threshold overseen by three-judge district court panel. It soon became clear that the state would hold out on complying with the judicial order. 2011 passed with little progress made on the declaration's mandate, and by 2012, a report surfaced that proved the state actually intended to increase its prison population. In May of that year, Harris's office confirmed their intent not to comply with the order, but instead to seek its modification. Then, bizarrely, they said that the Supreme Court did not have the jurisdiction. At one point, even suggesting that the Supreme Court lacked the jurisdiction to order a reduction in California's prison population. Uh... I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure the Supreme Court is the ultimate jurisdiction for pretty much anything. So, Kamala Harris being in love with mass incarceration, loving jailing people, loving keeping them in jail, loving going against single mothers, in some case homeless single mothers for truancy, laughing about legalizing marijuana. These are not breaking news situations. But the question is, why? Why, if the Supreme Court, for actual health reasons, I just described, actually the American Prospect, with their great reporting, described the, the heinous conditions in California's prison, overcrowding, lack of, hy- lack of hygiene. Why would Kamala Harris, as Attorney General, pick a fight with the Supreme Court rather than let my people go, as my Jews would say. The, it, the prisoners that, were being, that they were told to release were nonviolent prisoners. I didn't read the whole story, but later in the story, you know what Kamala Harris's brilliant idea was? We're not actually going to let them go and free them. We're just going to move them to fight California's wildfires. So instead of following what the Supreme Court mandated, let's take the prisoners, many of, most of them black or brown, and we'll just put their lives at risk fighting California's wildfires, which they don't have any training to do. I'm not making this shit up. That was the counterproposal that Ka- uh, Kamala Harris and the state put forward. First of all, I mean, I'm not, I mean, the Supreme Court... You know, I'm not uh, a champion of the Supreme Court. It's all politics. It's disgusting. But how is this person claiming to be, you know, I'm going to prosecute the case of Trump? You know, 
we call out William Barr, rightly so, for being a stooge for President Trump. He's basically President Trump's personal attorney rather than the head of the Department of Justice, which is supposed to be independent. He has been brazenly corrupt. Some would say lawless. But Kamala Harris, as Attorney General of California, defied a Supreme Court mandate. Uh, The Supreme Court mandated that there be a three-judge panel to oversee the decarceration of California's overcrowded prison system. And she basically told the Supreme Court to take a hike. This goes with Kamala Harris fighting against releasing a father who, by all accounts, the New York Times reported on this, was wrongly convicted for sexually assaulting his daughter. It came out later, multiple witnesses, including the the daughter's mother, that she was a pathological liar, that she was unstable. Kamala Harris, even though she was compelled by a court to release him, fought to keep this man in prison in California because he didn't, basically he didn't file the right, under the right something to be released. Why is this more important than usual? Folks, I mean, let's be clear. I reported on it yesterday. Joe Biden let it slip that it looks like Kamala Harris is going to be his vice president. Sure, something could change between now and next week. It's supposed to be announced next week. But he had on his little note card, don't hold grudges. This is very important because, frankly, if you think Dick Cheney was running things for George Bush, wait for whoever is Biden's VP. I don't say this to mock Biden, but I've been saying it for a year, and I'll keep saying it. He's clearly not well. There's clearly cognitive decline going on. You diagnose it. I'll just say a cognitive decline because I'm not a doctor. So whoever his vice president is, is going to be in a very, very unique position to have a lot of authority, to have a large portfolio of policy, both domestic and foreign, and to possibly become the next president after Biden, possibly before 2024, if Biden doesn't finish out for whatever reason. And my strong assumption, again, just speculation, I'm not reporting anything, I don't know this for fact. Why do you think Kamala Harris would fight so hard to keep prisoners in California? Could it have something to do with all her donors in California? She was a darling of the Democratic Party, dating back to when she was California Attorney General. She was being groomed for the Senate, a rising star. Go back, read the articles. Democratic Party donors and heavyweights, they don't exactly mind packed prisons. They don't mind for-profit prisons. They don't mind prison labor. They don't mind tough on crime. Just ask Uncle Joe, the author of the crime bill. But it's pretty unbelievable. I mean, can you imagine for a second if, I don't know, Louis Gohmert was the attorney general of Texas 
Louis Gohmert, by the way, has COVID now because he wouldn't wear a mask, and he defied a Supreme Court ruling, it would be all over MSNBC, all over CNN, all over everywhere, rightly so. But if it's but if it's in, if it's in, if it's a member of the resistance, oh well.